Shrink Wrap Radio number 804, Art Therapy and Eco-Psychotherapy with UK Jungian Analyst Mary Jane Rust. And now it's time for Dr. Dave and Shrink Wrap Radio. You're on the couch again with Dr. Dave and Shrink Wrap Shrink Wrap Radio. All the psychology you need to know and just enough to make it dangerous. It's all in your head. And now here's your host, Dr. Dave. Our guest today is Jungian analyst Mary Jane Rust. She's interviewed by Isabella Clark, my Oxford-trained UK associate, and Shrinkwrap Radio blogger. Mary Jane Rust is a Jungian analyst and art therapist. Alongside her therapy practice, she teaches eco-psychology, a growing field of inquiry into our complex relationship with the Earth, our home. Her publications include her 2019 book, Towards an Eco-Psychotherapy. Mary Jane grew up beside the sea and is wild about swimming. In the interview, she recommends the 1995 book, Eco-Psychology, Restoring the Earth, Healing the Mind. Incidentally, I interviewed two of the editors of that book in a previous Shrinkwrap Radio episode. Hello, this is Izzy Clark. I'm doing the interview this week on behalf of Dr. Dave. Our interviewee is Mary Jane Rust. She is a Jungian analyst and art therapist. Alongside her therapy practice, she teaches eco-psychology, a growing field of inquiry into our complex relationship with the Earth, our home. Her publications include Towards an Eco-Psychotherapy by Comfort Books in 2019. She grew up beside the sea and is wild about swimming. Now, here's the interview. So with me today is Mary Jane Rust. Mary, welcome to Shrinkwrap Radio. And um, you've written a book that I really enjoyed reading called Towards an Eco-Psychotherapy. And we'll mainly be talking about that. But first of all, I thought it would be great to find out how you found yourself in this field, how you got here. Well, it's a very long story how I got here. I'll try and um, just give you the headlines. So um, I grew up in the country. My dad was a miller. So I was very much embedded in the farming community. Um, and But I always had a very strong interest in psychology. So piece those things together and you can understand that later on, I, when I discovered the field of eco-psychology, I was absolutely overjoyed. But one of the things that sort of, you know, I got very involved with um, being in my own therapy and training and so on. And then I went and spent some time in Ladakh, a traditional culture on the Tibetan plateau oh. in 92 and 93. And it was there that where I met someone called Helena Norberg Hodge, a Swedish woman who was doing some, had set up a, a green NGO, looking at the rapid transition um, for the local people, you know, as is happening all over the world with traditional cultures moving suddenly into, into Western culture and all the difficulties that happen. And she was very interested in the psychological dimension of that as well. Uh, and I stayed with her and she's a bit of a missionary and she pointed out all the terrible things that were happening, including glaciers melting. And I knew about that stuff, but actually to, I, it was there that I, it moved from my mind down into my body and I really felt it. Uh, when I came home, I felt a bit like a cat on hot bricks. What am I to do with this information, this felt information? 
Um, and in the end, I met up with a number of other therapists who felt the same way, because most of my colleagues thought I was mad at that point, because it wasn't in the news or anything, climate change. I don't know that climate change was even a word at that point. Um, and we got together and in a sense, that was our training together. We, we um, read together, we experimented running workshops together. We went on residentials with someone called Joanna Macy, who was a, right. still is a leader in that field and John Seed, rainforest activist. Okay. Um, and that just was fantastic. It was fantastic. And I just, that was, I knew that was my thing. That was my thing. Um, and then from then on, I kind of developed it in lots of different ways. I've done lots of public speaking and run trainings and courses and um, found ways to bring it into my individual therapy practice. That's what a, what a list of um, I didn't realize you'd been to Tibet and, you know, Joanna Macy and, and John Seed, both people that I very much come across in 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 the domain of, of, sort of climate change and ways of dealing with it emotionally. But I didn't realize that there was that strong connection in in ecotherapy as well. Um, and but but it would be good to get a sense of exactly what area you're specifically talking about. And in the book, you do a great job of clarifying or distinguishing between ecotherapy, the bigger field, eco-psychology, and then eco-psychotherapy. And so I was wondering if for our listeners and, and viewers, if you could do that same kind of clarification process. Well, I'll start with eco-psychology because that is really the field of study, which emerged, well, I would say it probably started emerging in the mid 1900s, but as an actual word, it emerged in the mid 1990s with an anthology edited by Theodore Rozak and Mary Gomes and Alan Canner. And that's still today a really well worth reading anthology because all the chapters are written by leading thinkers in the field and they've gone on to write books. Um, so, this as the study of the it's really the study and inquiry into our human relationship with the other than human world that's it in a nutshell and a very core belief um, is that we have become disconnected from the natural world we've withdrawn I think is probably a better word uh, as western culture of course that's happened over millennia or centuries so it's it's a bit like frogs getting used to boiling in water that we've got used to this disconnection and the paradigm that we are apparently separate and superior to our relatives and eco-psychology is a response to that and is saying actually it's traumatizing for humans to be so disconnected we spent most of our life as a species embedded in nature and with an intimate knowledge of the other than human world. And suddenly, it almost like if you saw human species in a 24 hour clock in the last second, we've lost it. Mm. <laughs> and that is not just a physical impact, it impacts us psychologically and spiritually. And in fact, if you look at what happens to indigenous cultures around the world, the few of them that are left, and you hear them speaking about being torn from their land, you know that actually it drives humans mad to be torn from their land. But we, it's so difficult for us to see that in ourselves because there's so many other things going on. So um, the question for eco-psychologists is, so how do we reconnect? We're never gonna go back and live as hunter-gatherers. So what does it mean to reconnect with the other than human world in our modern lives? And that's a very complex question. And I think there's lots of different answers to that. Um, one of the, so, so then there's the practice of ecotherapy eco is the practice of eco-psychology. And there's lots of different forms of that. Wilderness therapy, equine assisted therapy, horticultural therapy, actually, which has been going on for a long time. Um, and in all of these different manifestations, 
It's recognizing the healing power of nature for humans, how it soothes, it's, it gives us a form of self-soothing, it helps us become more embodied, um, it regulates our emotions. Um, so in a sense, that's what horticulture therapy was all about, just take people out into nature and get them growing their vegetables and they will automatically get better. So ecotherapy uses that healing quality. Eco-psychotherapy is more like taking psychotherapy outdoors. Mm-hmm. Um, and I forgot to add that, of, of course, all those other forms of ecotherapies are practiced outdoors. And it's a big thing. You know, this only happens outdoors. As an eco-psychotherapist, I would say it's also about what happens internally. So just as we might internalize mother or father, what about how, how do we internalize the earth? How do we internalize rock or water? Do they live in our inner worlds? Of course they do, because it's a microcosm in a sense that reflects the macrocosm. But in the world of psychotherapy, we're, it's, it's all about human relationships and how we internalize our human carers, you know, our parents, etc. Eco-psychotherapy extends that and says, actually, we have a relationship with everything from the moment we're conceived, you know, we're conceived into water in the womb. And then we're all born onto a piece of land. Um, Many people um, experience grief for the first time when their animal companion dies as a child. It's a huge thing. Alternatively, some people who live in dysfunctional families and don't get the love that they need maybe only experience unconditional love from animals or plants, actually. So um, you can get more of a flavor, you know, also, of course, the natural world comes to us through our dreams and in many, many different ways. So I would say it's not necessarily about being outdoors actually it's about conceiving of ourselves in a different way we are not just human related even though they remain of course central because we're humans (laughs) thank you so much that that is that is really clear and comprehensive and and I think it would I I love the um parts of your book where you talked about you you explain how this works in a in a clinical setting when you go outside with someone and um and it would be lovely if you could um give us a sense of a couple of aspects of that I love the story and I think it's I can't remember if it was Linda or Tina one of you one of your clients who's obviously that those names were chosen for them they are not the names of the of the real people um but the story about the the squirrels and the spiders that that story I think is such an excellent example of how of the benefits of of taking the of taking the conversation the dialogue outside okay so um i was starting out uh practicing outdoors it was a huge step for me i'd been trained to work indoors and of course there's a very strong ethic in the world of psychotherapy that you work in a a room which is the container Mm -hmm. for highly confidential highly sensitive material So there is always an issue of confidentiality when you're working outdoors, especially if you're working in public space. So I had lots to think about, but I really was excited by the idea of doing it. And actually one day, one of my clients who was very interested in the field of eco-psychology, and she knew that I was because I give talks and, you know, write articles and so on. And she asked me, "Can can we meet outdoors? And we'd be meeting for several years already. And I said, yes, let's talk about it a bit first and how we're going to do it. So we did. And then one day we just decided, yes, we're going to do it. Uh, And it was a little bit strange for me because I was so used to opening the door and no, not having any social contact. You just sit down and then the session begins. There's a whole uh, ritual, really, about how you start a session and how the room is a sort of sanctuary, really. Uh, in any case, we met and uh, at the top of the start of the woods beside where I live. Um, I invited her to find to find us a spot to sit in, and we settled 
next door to each other, which of course is also very different, under a great oak with our backs against the oak. And immediately I just felt, wow, this is really different. Not only is my client supported, I feel really supported by being in the woods and by my, I've, the tree has got my back. This was such a different experience of practicing as a therapist. But it was also a little unnerving to be side by side. Um, you know, we just had to kind of invent it as we went along. And for several sessions, the dialogue was much the same as it had been indoors. And I was thinking, well, you know, so am I meant to be doing something different here? <laughs> then one day, um, she dropped into one of her silences, which she used to do a lot indoors. And it was very, very difficult um, because it was a very tense silence. And I would try and say things to see if I could bring her out of the silence. And usually it didn't work. Uh, anyway, I did that outdoors um, and we would fall back into silence again. And then suddenly we saw these squirrels chasing each other around the tree. And so I said, I smiled and she smiled and I said, does it feel like I'm chasing you with my words? And she smiled. Uh, in other words, yes. Uh, so we fell into silence again. Um, but it was a very different, I had a very different quality of silence outdoors because it, it's never silent outdoors. There's the wind and the trees and the birds and all kinds of things are going on, activities around us. So it didn't have that sense of tension that was, you know, somehow an arid silence indoors. Anyway, we went on and it was towards very much the end of the session and we both looked down at the same time and we saw the tiniest of spiders weaving a web between our arms. Magical. And we both looked up at each other and it was just, we just both knew somehow this spider was building a bridge between us that I couldn't have done with my words. I didn't do with my words, but we were together and it felt very different. It felt much more relaxed. And then it, she said, well, what are we going to do at the end of the session? How are we going to, are we going to break the web? Uh, and I just sort of shrugged my shoulders. I didn't know what to do. Anyway, the end of the session came. We both looked down. The spider was gone. The web was gone. <laughs> That's magical. Just, it was completely magical. And there were, you know, there have been other times too where I remember she was deep in the middle of a process of grief after losing her mother. And um, she said, there is no new life how you feel when you're right in the midst of grief. And an acorn dropped in her lap, <laughs> as if to say, oh yes, there is. <laughs> and we had, you know, there are so many occasions like that. And it, it's quite difficult pulling out these examples because I think it makes people think these incredible things happen all the time. And I don't really want to give that impression, but I, I do want to say that actually Lots of things, lots of synchronicities do happen when you practice outdoors. And of course, it's much more difficult for them to happen indoors. So there is a way in which um, it's like a moment of grace when that happens. It's like, it's like we're reminded that we are part of something sacred together, all together. And you describe nature as the co-facilitator in these encounters. And you have a, you have a lovely um, section about asking permission and how your clients responded to that process of you suggesting that asking permission might be appropriate. So this is something really that came to me fairly early on when I was trying to work out um, how, to, how to do this practice. Um, and I decided that just like we have um, opening the door for entry into my house and then going up into my room and closing the door, that it would be good to create a threshold, mm. which sort of indicated that we were now in session. And one of the things I do before we start is to say, every, once we've crossed that threshold, everything and everyone that comes to us 
is part of the session and holds meaning as if we're in a dream. Um, so as it does in, in the therapy session, that's how you would treat it anyway. But uh, so before we cross the threshold, we ask the forest, which is a community of trees, a community of beings, can we enter for our healing work or words, whatever words we want to use. And um, I suggest to my client that we both do this, we might do it out loud, we might just do it in our minds, and we really listen for a response and see what kind of, what the woods have to say back. And I have never had a no yet, but you know, you never know. <laughs> but I think what it does is it reminds us both that we are it we are in reciprocal relationship with all life. And we because otherwise ecotherapy can become yet another form of Western consumerism, that we go into nature to get healed and take what we want and go home again with no thought of, well, do we give back? No. Um, so I think that asking the permission of the trees or the space, however anyone wants to do it, is a reminder that um, we don't just go in and plunder. <laughs> It's one of the aspects of your book that I found particularly sensitive and thought provoking. And um, and I think it aligns with this idea of this kind of Western tradition of being somewhat exploitative, of just taking what we want for something, is that you're very, very cautious about um, any way in which a cultural appropriation could seem to be involved in this process. Because I think I think your view and it's it's my view have this sense of an animate earth um that there is uh, well for me um for me i feel that there is something <laughs> within you know sort of the trees the plants as well as the the birds and insects and, and mammals and so on and that could seem to be um part of someone else's and new animistic tradition but um so you're very very wary about um about not taking from another culture? Mm. It, it's a, an ongoing exploration really as to how we do that. Um, and as you can imagine, certainly in the States, in the world of eco-psychology, people are busy um, borrowing native ceremonies um, and practices for reconnection with nature. And many of them have been given permission to do so um, by indigenous people. Um, I've worked with someone over here who was given permission by um, a native, a Native American to perform ceremony. Uh, she is much older and, and there are the sort of grandparents in the field who wouldn't call themselves eco-psychologists because they've been doing this for ages. They don't need that term. Um, but things have moved on and my colleagues in the States tell me that native peoples are a bit sick of white people coming to their ceremonies and taking, some of them taking without permission. And you can understand after everything, after everything that has happened for them, then to have their most precious spiritual practice taken without due respect is just awful. And while there are many people who do it with respect, I can understand their wish to just put a foot down and say, no, actually, no white people can do this. Mm. That leaves us in a, well, it certainly leaves people in the States in a quandary. Um, how do we, you know, how do we refind our roots? Um, and uh, there's quite a few of my colleagues over here who were talking about finding our own indigenous roots. Yes, they're going back to a Celtic uh, tradition or... The Celtic tradition or um, whatever. There's many different traditions to choose from. I think that's very exciting. Um, again, I have questions about using the word indigenous because even though in lay terms, it means you are from this land. Actually, in political terms, indigenous peoples grow up 
in, a, in an intact culture and have all kinds of traditions, which in a sense, that's what makes them indigenous. It's not just being born onto a piece of land. It's about, it's about having stories. It's about having crafts. It's about having a cosmo an intact cosmology. It's about knowing how to be with other people and with yourself. I mean, there's just so much involved and we can't possibly get there because we haven't grown up in it. Yes. So politically, I don't think it's right. And I've been told by Indigenous friends that they don't think it's right either for us to call ourselves Indigenous. Uh, it's a bit like a white person suddenly saying, oh, well, actually, I'm black. Mm. Uh, you can't. <laughs> but we can take steps towards reclaiming our own traditions. I don't see the need to have to, you, you, to I don't see the need to call it indigenous. I just say, actually, we can recreate an intimate relationship with the rest of life. We can look at our own traditions. We can um, bring back storytelling. We can bring back all sorts of practices in relation to the land. And that's, that's happening. Um, I just think we, we have to be careful not to appropriate other cultures. Yes, I think it, I think it is is happening. I mean, I was quite excited by the courses which American listeners might not necessarily, well, many English listeners probably won't know about the courses that are available at Schumacher College, for example, which yes. um, which enable people to get back um, to to be engaged in an ecological community and um, very much sort of like within the soil, working with the land, embedded in that place. Um, and making things out of what they have grown and parts of the storytelling aspects to it there's thinking through the issues and it's I suppose in a sense a way of um, creating a new set of myths or stories or understandings which which seems to me to be an incredibly fertile area for discovery and is something that I would I would love to do but there's also quite a lot in a more sort of like spiritual side of it of you know the idea that perhaps we could you know evolve into a into a into a sort of like different state of more connected consciousness and I always feel that that's that there's something there's something there's something that has to be engaged with not just what we're thinking and feeling and I, I don't there there seem to be a lot of different courses and a lot of different groups of people who who want to move in a direction towards an earth harmony but it's it's there's so many and it's and it seems quite difficult to know how you would ever choose between them and what the most um what the what the soundest ones were mm. Mm. sorry sorry mary jane it's difficult to uh sift through all the different options because they are um blossoming at the moment in terms of lots of different courses i mean when i first started running courses before i really brought this into um working with with individuals in my therapy practice um in when was it sort of around 2004 i met up with an outdoor educator dave key uh, i knew i wanted to work with groups in the wilds and he was doing it already, but he felt a bit out of his depth psychologically. So he was looking for a therapist to work with. And so together we started running courses up in Scotland and we called them ecotherapy courses. Um, and in part was participants came young. We often had a funny combination of young men who wanted to train to do outdoor work and older women therapists <laughs> who, who wanted to learn a bit more about working outdoors. Um, so it was an interesting mix. And we worked in an amazing place on the west coast of Scotland. That was really my first initiation into working outdoors. And that was one of the very first ecotherapy courses to appear on the scene in this country, although they were certainly happening in the States. And of course, there were others happening that certainly weren't called ecotherapy. So people have been running 
quote, vision quests uh, for a long time, um, things like that. Um, one of the aspects of um, that people could bring or could feel, feel was particularly appropriate to bring to someone who worked outside or with nature as a co-facilitator might be the area of eco-anxiety and I think that's something that you feel quite strongly about. Yes actually I want first of all though I want to return to your word of nature as co-facilitator because mm. I think I think it's an issue it's an issue for me anyway it's it's a it's a phrase that's used quite a lot I'm a, I'm um think that say with me and my clients and with our backs against the oak tree I'm happy to think of the oak tree as hopefully helping us together with the therapeutic work mm -hmm. and the beings in the forest but when you think of nature it's, a, it's such a funny word really because it means so many different things in its widest sense nature with a capital N is everything it's the it's the greater whole and for me because I see nature as infused it's it's not just a biological entity it's infused with spirit or energy it's alive in the same way that we're alive I would say uh, I'm an animist in a way that I would say that other beings have different they have consciousness different kinds of consciousness don't want to get into the argument of human you know what is consciousness is very complicated but I think we all dwell in a conscious whole and so to start calling that uh, my co-facilitator seems a bit grand <laughs> <laughs> put it in those it's a bit terms like God's my co-facilitator <laughs> so that's why I'm a little bit wary of saying nature as co-facilitator, but, uh, but um, I certainly think that other beings could help in the process. So um, you asked about eco-anxiety, uh, which is, I think, has been very much um, in the media in probably the last two or three years at least, um, increasingly, and it's a word now that's come right into the mainstream. and. I suppose the first thing I want to say is that I, I'm very uh, wary of it becoming a kind of medicalized term, as if people who are suffering from eco-anxiety need to go and see a therapist. Well, I guess if it's got really bad and you're unable to function, then probably therapy is a good route. But for goodness sake, find a therapist who's sympathetic to, and knows about ecotherapy because many therapists don't work in that way um, and they might mistakenly think that the, that the anxiety is really about your dad <laughs> or your mum <laughs> and not, re not really about the world. Um, so really I'd rather think of it as a healthy response to a sick situation of sick society that we are in a crisis we are in a very extreme environmental crisis with no apparent turning it around um, I mean lots of people are trying but it's it, it all feels a little bit too little and too late uh, maybe it will turn around in the end you never know but it doesn't look like that at the moment. So no wonder people are frightened. And then, of course, you can't really separate it from all the social crises going on at the moment. Um, you, the, the crisis in Ukraine is going to contribute. You know, it's the main producer of wheat. It's going to contribute to the ecological crisis. And, of course, war in this kind of, in this kind of war is contributing to carbon emissions. So everything all goes in together that these crises are inseparable um, but when someone comes to me with eco-anxiety I suppose um, they simply need to be listened to in the same way that I would listen to any other anxiety it's helpful to name you know in, in a sense it's an umbrella term and of course then you find underneath that actually the person is fearful is angry, is 
despairing, feels helpless, feels hopeless. There are all kinds of ways in which naming what's going on can really help someone move through it, accept that it's there, make friends with it and allow it to move away. Unlike most other anxieties, this is something that is not going to actually go because the situation isn't going to go. So then we have to think about how, how can we actually practically help it? But I wouldn't rush to a practical solution to begin with. As with any psychological problem that someone brings me, I, I wouldn't try and give them a quick fix. We want to talk about it first. And maybe it does relate to other anxieties uh, that the person is having. But eventually, there may come a time where that person also wants to take some sort of action because that may relieve some of the anxiety. So getting involved with the numerous different groups that are taking action, maybe it's planting trees, maybe it's joining Extinction Rebellion. There's numerous different ways in which people can get active, but not. I would say don't try and jump into it too soon. That's always my response to everything is to try to respond to it immediately rather than rather than taking due time. Um, in your final chapter of the book, and I think this sort of leads on somewhat, you, you'd say, and let me just sort of quote a, quote a sentence that I've got written on my screen. Our task now is to restore balance in ourselves and in the collective. This means paying attention to both individual and collective action. This is where I place my hope that whatever the future outcome whether we find renewal of life on earth or whether humans and many others of our relatives become extinct before the end of the century, we can still work toward restoring balance as far as possible. Repairing our relationship with others is always worth attending to right to the end. And um, I, I found that is, the, that is the, the, the call, it seems to me, to, um, to have this change of the way that we the way that we think about nature with the capital N and feel ourselves to be part of it rather than the sort of stepchildren that we seem to think we are. And do you, 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 you suggest that you feel that ecotherapy, eco-psychotherapy can play a part in this kind of, in this kind of transformation? Um, I think it can. And actually what I'd like to add to what I was just saying about eco-anxiety is that really people who are concerned about the crisis, it's much, much better to, rather than going into therapy, to band together with other like-minded people, go to a climate cafe, for example. Um, and somehow we can do this, we need to do this together. So there is a an organization called the Climate Psychology Alliance, which organizes things like climate cafes and other events, so that you can then start to feel, meet other people who have the same sorts of anxieties. And that's a huge relief, actually, to find that other people feel the same way <laughs> and that maybe they've gone a little bit ahead of you in terms of um, finding some uh, solutions or finding some ways of dealing with their feelings so I would really highly recommend that um, and I'll also talk about uh, websites later um, but I, I I think yes there is a transformation that's possible I've certainly found that um, in my own life mm -hmm. and I think there are several key things for me in this the first is how difficult it is to sit with the grief for what's happening to our world. At the same time, finding places of hope. And it's not really even hope, I would say. It's more like, actually, there are, there are places where I can find joy and there are places where I can um, deepen my relationship to the non-human world, that for me has been um, amazing. It's been amazing. And it's almost like your mother is on her dying bed and you have a conversation about 
the terrible things that have happened between you. And she tells it like it is. And you tell it like it is. And you really hear each other. And then, you know, there is a possibility for forgiveness. How incredible. And then she dies. Well, the death is made much better by coming together, to really coming together. And I think it's a little bit like that with the earth. We may not be able to save this situation, but at least let's recognize what we've done, how we've treated nature, how we still as a species, we're so arrogant. Um, we think that we're superior to the rest of life. This is something that can shift and we can really recognize the true wisdom of plants and animals and um, the other than human world. Uh, I, I think if we can do anything um, as the ship is going down, goodness, let's try and do that because maybe that will, that will contribute to turning it around anyway. So it's a vital piece of action. So I think holding together grief and possibilities of things that we can do, action we can take, is, is a really difficult challenge, but it's possible um, to hold what we would call the tension of opposites in the Jungian world, to stop the polarization from splitting things apart, which it's happening all over the place. You can see politically around the world, everything's tending to split apart and become very black and white. Goodness, let's try and keep making the middle ground. We must keep making the middle ground and hold the tension of the opposites. And the other thing I would say is about, as far as we possibly can, keeping our hearts open and having compassion. It's very easy. I do it regularly, getting very angry. I'm angry with Putin. I'm angry with Trump. I'm angry with lots of um, men in power. And of course, it's not just men either, and so on. And a lot of people say humans are a bad lot. You know, it would be a good thing when we're wiped out. I don't think that, you know, we're a mixture, just like everything's a mixture. So let's have some compassion for where we've got to. Let's have some compassion for how somehow we seem to have become very traumatized as a culture. And um, we're just doing, most people are doing their best actually to survive. It's really hard. There's, there's so many things have come up for me there. And one of them is um, I've been um, writing a piece of work on the ethical importance of animal cultures. Um, and first of all, it was, um, you know, the elephant has a has a multi-generational complex family unit and that harm to one of those individuals and particularly the matriarch element, elephant is, is harm to all members of the, of the troop. And so I've been very inf influenced by Gabe Bradshaw's work on PTSD in, um, in elephants and, um, and how the breakdown of the elephant culture led to um, pathological behavior or, or just behavior that, that would be classified as PTSD type behavior in terms of aggression and violence among young male elephants. And, you know, the analogies between, between that and, and, and humans, but the, the, and so that, that sort of strikes me as what you were saying right at the beginning, the way in which our culture has cut itself off from its engagement within Na wider nature is something of a cultural breakdown that we've all experienced as you said that there is this trauma there is this damage that you know we then have to deal with with these various prosthetic prosthetics of consumerism or power or, or or what have you because we don't have that thing that we that we used to have which was this intact culture and the the process of exploring animal cultures has led me into led me down some fantastic and, and wonderful rabbit holes which I which I is irrelevant here um but that that was one thing the other thing that um that that 
what you were saying brought to mind was I was recently listening to a James Hollis book, the Jungian writer, and he was he was taught used a term that I hadn't come across before about the positive shadow. And um, and I had also been reading naturalist John A. Livingston's book, The Rogue Primate, about um, in which he posits the idea that non-human animals um, for non-human animals, the egoic self is just a very small nested part of the whole self with a capital S and that this expands out into a sense of a group identity, a collective identity and perhaps even a biospheric sense of self that this consciousness is not stuck in the bone skull of each individual but is expansive and can be shared between between family between community between ecosystem and and certainly when you spend a lot of time with animals as Barbara Smuts did in her work with baboons she felt that in the troop of baboons and you see it when you watch a flock of birds so taking this all together I started to wonder whether the positive shadow that we are suppressing is that whole wider sense of self with a capital S that we don't want to be aware of, that we're pushing away. And that rather than evolving into a new sense of consciousness, we need to rediscover the what's there, <laughs> what's what we've hidden, what we haven't allowed to become visible. Exactly. I couldn't really say it any better than you just said it. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> oh wow, that's <laughs> that's that's some commendation. But did you does does that feel to you as if that's the sort of that's the that's the the kind of way that you think too? Very much so. So um, I was thinking as you were talking, you know, one of the one of the ways in which we've got into such a muddle is by it's not just not being related to the other than human world, we don't any longer really um, respect our animal selves. We don't like to think of ourselves as animals. There's a thick black line between us and, and the rest of life. And there's a thick black line between what we think, what we believe to be human and what we believe to be our animal selves. And we project our shadow onto the animal self. And actually the positive shadow or the golden shadow, as some people call it, is only retrieved when we can do the work of lifting out what we've repressed. And in that is buried all the stuff that we're scared of. Like, for example, most people think of our animal selves as these, you know, like a werewolf, aggressive, wild, um, uncontained, sexually disinhibited. I mean, animals, you know, maybe they are a bit like that sometimes, but most of the time they're not like that. And actually humans are like that a lot of the time too. <laughs> you know, humans get aggressive because generally they're defending something and so do animals and so on. You can go on and on and on like that. So once we've taken that out of the bag, then we can begin to see, ah, so I've packed away, not just my wild aggression, but I've also packed away my sensual nature. I've packed away my intuition. I've packed away my instinct because somehow they've all got baggaged away under the same label of animal and I don't trust it. That's what's happened in our culture that we've, retreated from our bodies and apparently the mind is the only thing now the rational mind is the only thing to be trusted intuition got burnt at the stake and even though the advertising industry will tell you that we rely on it all the time we don't like to admit that we rely on it not really um, Jung has this way of thinking about the mind uh, in terms of four functions thinking feeling sensation and intuition and so it's really the thinking that's up here in the mind and the sensing and the intuiting and the feeling are all located in their body They're all bodily functions and we need all of them to steer the ship as it were they 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 all need to be at the table for all our decision making 
And in fact, that often happens without people really admitting it. You know, if you go and buy a house, you're going to step in and you're going to get a feel of it. Or an intuition comes in and you think, well, no, not that one. I don't think it's or it's not the right time. Can I, can I ask you, I've, I've always been a little bit confused with the thinking, feeling, sensing and intuiting because I've, I haven't been able to distinguish the other ones. I mean, I know what thinking is and I think sensing is about the senses, isn't exactly. it? Exactly, yeah. But what's the difference between feeling and intuiting? Well, it's a very good question and it might take me rather a long time. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> well, I probably, I, I got the impression from one of um, Stephen Hardin's latest, latest book that maybe feeling was about the kind of value of something, whereas intuiting was about an understanding. Yes, yes, is, yes. Is that... But I think the main thing is that all of those things have been packed away and actually they are part of our animal nature. Animals yes. are very good at picking things up at intuiting things. I mean, obviously they're very good at sensing things. We know that, um, but we are too, and we can develop those capacities. They're like muscles that we've forgotten how to use. We can really develop them. I'll, I'll just ask you one more question, Mary Jane, before, before I then say, to con ask you to consider if there's anything that you wanted to particularly bring up before, before we go. But my last question is, um, is about the non-animals, <laughs> and um, I get the impression from what you've been saying that the that the tree world, the plant world, is 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 equally as as important to you. I, I I feel that, and one of the things that I've been struggling with lately is that when the moral circle expands to include all sentient beings, that still to me seems like it's not it's just not going far <laughs> enough. <laughs> And I find it quite difficult to, um, to sort of articulate that. And I don't know, but either in the eco-psychology eco aspect, the, the, the study, or in, um, in any of the work you've done with clients, whether, whether plant or vegetation is, is as influential as, as animals and birds have been. I think it's different for different people. I, I used to see someone who... Um, had quite a severe eating problem and along the way she developed a passion for gardening which she'd never tried before and of course it was very soothing and helped her eating problem uh, and then she kind of, she got an allotment which for any listeners outside the UK is like a community garden where she was able to grow her vegetables and the plants started to speak to her plants started to say you know I need to go here or you need to give me this supplement or you know whatever it was I'm sure it wasn't a supplement but anyway <laughs> plants would would tell her what they needed so she just had a natural gift for listening to, mm. to plants um, whereas I think I'm I have been more animal centered and I've I need uh, and on, in my eco-psychology journey, I've needed to learn more about listening to plants. It's um, trees, I think, is always, I've always had a love for trees, but actual plants. So I think different, different people sense different, um, that are closer to different beings. But, you know, there's a lot of, lot of green-fingered people out there in this country who talk to their plants. <laughs> I, I genuinely felt that after the tree surgery that I thought had killed my aged lilac I genuinely felt that my sort of expressions of love and compassion helped bring her back into yes. me <laughs> yes there are um, some amazing stories like that actually um and so so Mary Jane I I I know I've taken up a, a lot of your time today, um, but is there anything that you feel that we that we haven't that we haven't co covered properly that you'd really like to bring out for the listeners and viewers? Well, I think a lot of people ask, so what's my next step in terms of reconnecting with nature? And I would say just a simple practice of going out each day, finding a spot that you love to be and asking permission if you can sit in that spot and just see what happens. Open yourself to meeting the animals, the butterflies, the birds, 
and the plants that are around you and see see what what moves through you and see what the connections are between how you're feeling that day and what comes. Um, I once, uh, last year I was due to have a tooth out and I was very anxious because it was, um, I'd been referred to a different dentist who was a man who I'd never met. And so the day before I went and sat on the heath in a spot that I love and a robin came to me and then the robin jumped on my knee and then the robin jumped on both knees. And then the robin did this many times over. <laughs> absolutely amazed by. And of course, I went away and felt much more relaxed. And the tooth extraction went fine, I'm pleased to say. But, you know, I went back to the same spot. It never happened again. It was really, really interesting how these sorts of things happen when you open the space for it. And I think the other thing I would say is in terms of finding your niche to offer something back to the world at this most perilous time. There's a lovely quote by someone called Frederick Buechner. Wouldn't necessarily use his language, but anyway, he says, the place God calls you to is where your deep gladness and the world's hunger meet. And I just think that's such a beautiful quote. It that is. That go and do what you love doing the most in the service of the earth. Don't go and do what you think you should do because you'll get burnt out. Think about your gifts and think about what you really love doing and bring that joy to the earth in some way. Everyone will find a different way of doing it. If your passion is trees, go and plant trees. If your passion is being a community person, Go and speak to people about what's happening. Find a way, join a group, so on. There are just countless ways to offer, to be in service. That's beautiful. A lovely place to end. And I know that earlier you'd mentioned some websites. So perhaps if you email the, them to me, we can add them to the show notes. So I can put a note to say um, that that you would that you suggested that people had a look at these. Mary Jane, thank you so much for your time. And we've been delighted to have you on Shrinkwrap Radio. Thank you. I think it was obvious how much I enjoyed that interview. Mary Jane Rust's generosity and depth of knowledge shone through. In the show notes, you'll find details on the book she mentioned and some web pages that she recommends. Her book, Towards an Eco-Psychotherapy, is quite short but rich in ideas. I think that her view that our disconnect from nature, with a capital N, as she said, is like an unhealed wound, is very persuasive. In her book, she writes, quote, Psychologically, we could say that we have not yet come to terms with our ambivalent relationship with the rest of nature. Nature, as the great mother, is both the ever-generous and bountiful mother, as well as the terrible mother who causes suffering and takes lives. In protecting our experience of the good Mother Earth, we tend to split, resulting in idealisation and denigration of nature. Idealisation is apparent in phrases such as I love nature, while rats, slugs, spiders and viruses are denigrated and receive many unwarranted projections. Perhaps one of the most difficult aspects for Western culture is to accept that we are totally dependent on the earth for all our needs. Being in touch with how small we are in relation to the great body of the earth exposes our vulnerabilities and the fact that we are not in control. End of quote. In contrast to this disjointed state, she explains that, quote, eco-psychotherapy recognises that we are part of a larger whole, a living and aware web of life, an animate earth. All beings are interconnected and interdependent and live within reciprocal relationships. We are part of a system of nested relationships. Human healing is inseparable from restoring the earth. End of quote. 
Mary Jane further adds that an eco-psychotherapist needs to be familiar with their own process in relation to the earth. So this could include knowing one's own earth story, spending time outdoors, knowing what's happening to the earth and inquiring into one's own responses. I didn't know a great deal about ecotherapy before reading this book. Having done so, I feel very drawn to it. I can see how it works well within a Jungian framework, but it appears to mesh equally well with any other approach. I meant to ask if she had found that her clients shifted their attitudes to nature with a capital N, and I wish that I had, as I'm sure that would have brought up some fascinating aspects of the work. I hope you enjoyed the interview as much as I did, and I thank Mary Jane for her time, and thank Dr Dave for this spot in the schedule. Hey Dr Dave, this is Chaz Frankie in St Louis, Missouri. And I was recently thrilled when I was in my classroom and heard some of my students mention that they have been listening to Shrink Wrap Radio as well. As a professor in the Master's in Social Work program at St. Louis University, I realized that you've contributed greatly to many of the things that I present, and I thought it was time that I also contribute something back. So I was very glad to be able to make a small donation to Shrink Wrap Radio as you've contributed so much to my learning, my teaching, and my profession. I really do appreciate it. Thanks, Dr. Dave. Thank you, Charles Frankie, there in St. Louis, for your donation and encouragement. And of course, thanks to all you other monthly supporters. Your regular donations are always so very welcome. By the way, I'm happy to let you all know once again that Shrinkwrap Radio is now available on Spotify. Look for S-H-R-I-N-K-R-A-P-R-A-D-I-O dot com. With that, once again, time to shrink wrap it up. Thanks to my London associate, Isabella Clark, for finding Jungian analyst and ecotherapist Mary Jane Rust and bringing her to us. Isabella brings a lot of value to the show by bringing us guests that I would never have known about and using the interview skills she has honed over the years as a UK sportscaster. Next week, my guest will be Bill Knecht, LCSW, speaking about his book, The Accidental Therapist, sharing over a half century of experience and insights to facilitate positive outcomes. So once again, this is Dr. Dave reminding you to be kind to yourself, others, and the earth. You've been shrink-wrapped by Dr. Dave. All the psychology you need to know, and just enough to make you dangerous.